Hello everyone, this is Alexandra and you're listening to chapter 4 of Social Dreaming. As I prepare for school, the dream I had last night plays through my head. I wanted to enter the theater, but I couldn't. Vanessa blocked me from entering her dream. How did she do that? How did I feel during that dream? Was it my subconscious trying to tell me something? Or am I reading too much into it? I pushed through the doors at the metro entrance. The vacuum seals pushed me back. I scanned my metro card and pushed through the gates, ready to bound down the escalator. But I'm stopped short blocked by a person with a suitcase taking up both sides of the escalator. Made any more predictions in dreams? Osokin asks me in Russian. I freeze from rubbing the pimples on my forehead. Predictions? I stutter. No, no predictions. Not a prediction at all. I hold back the urge to smack my forehead. I never should have told him that I predicted the essay prompt. What was I thinking, exposing myself to the most talkative person in the year, who can't even whisper? Osokin frowns. Too bad, he says. A, are you joining grad council? I grimace. A what, council? Graduation. You know, to put on all the grad events. I scratch my knuckle. I ran for student council in 8th grade and lost. I've been uninterested in councils since. Student council isn't about who's fit for the job. It's a popularity contest. My lunch routine is is snaking to the hall overlooking the school courtyard. I don't go to any clubs. If I sit on the bench before the lower classmen come hounding for a place, the hall remains quiet all lunch. Angelina Vladimirovna passed me in the hall once. She smiled and said, Well, this is a nice quiet spot, isn't it? It is nice in theory. Mostly, it highlights how much of a loner I am. And my back has cramped from hunching on the bench. It's time for a change. The biology classroom has been flipped to allow for people rearranging tables and shoving chairs every which way to sit in their groups. People are having conversations everywhere. I try to listen to one, but get distracted by another. I catch snippets of each. I never wanted that. What an insomniac. I really wanted the daddy-daughter dinner dance. I was going to run for president, but I didn't feel like it. I could have been president, but whatever. My head's spinning. I ease to a table in the corner and sit at a desk, putting my chin in my hands. At the front of the room stands Principal Bogdanov. 
a rare sight. When he's in the mood, he walks around school reprimanding people for their uniforms and barking at us to get to class. Tables creak as kids hop to sit on them. Zuyev puts his legs on a chair, scraping the chair legs across the floor with a shriek between a whiteboard and a chalkboard-like sound. Principal Bogdanov throws Zuyev a look. Thanks for coming, Principal Bogdanov, says Osokin. We'd love to hear about the funding we have available for this year's grad events. Ha! Principal Bogdanov barks a laugh. Funding? Are you serious? You kids and your ideas these days. There is zero funding for your grad events. The last thing we need is a repeat of last year's disaster. Osokin scratches his chin. I figured you'd say that. We'll raise funding ourselves. No, says Principal Bogdanov. That's why I'm here. You kids are not having any more parties or events. <gasps> Council members gasp. A murmur spreads throughout the room. Osokin cries in protest. You can't do that. Yes, I can. Did you really think we let you continue after three students were hospitalized? They were hospitalized because they were jumped, not because of parties, Osokin says. Principal Bogdanov crosses his arms. That's my point. There are too many divisions in the school. No more events or clubs. All they do is cause gangs. One more incident and this school will be shut down and you won't graduate. He looks at Osokin. So grad council is not allowed. Osokin's arms raise. This is mutiny. Shh, you'll get in trouble, I say pulling on his arm. Let go, he says. He yanks his arm free and throws me a look. Everybody off the tables, Principal Bogdanov hollers. What is this, a pigsty? He shoes people off desks and ushers people out of the room until the class is cleared. In the hall, Osokin punches a wall. He can't cancel parties. There are grad events every year. For some people, the parties is what they look forward to and work toward every Monday through Friday, over and over. He cannot do this. What's the big deal? I ask. It's only some parties. He scowls. Are you kidding? It's not just some parties. It's the only way to get closure. It's the best events of our lives, grad events. It's the last events before we're shipped off to the army. It's our only hope of happiness before we go. Zuyev grabs Osokin's shoulder. They won't be collecting for the army until spring of next year. That's because you're 17. But I'm 18, 
So I'll be going in the fall. I do not want to go. He shivers. That's the last place I want to be. He kicks a garbage can, the clang reverberating down the hall. Oh, good, you're here, says Dr. Pesahi Omarovich. He pats the computer on the desk near the door. This is where you'll be sitting. You'll need to greet patients and collect payments. I nod and sit at the desk. The clock ticks to 18 o'clock and a couple enters the office. I say, hello, welcome. But they ignore me and greet Dr. Pesahi Omarovich. The three disappear into his patient room. At hour 19, the couple leaves and a patient enters. The couple pays me as the patient disappears into the doctor's room. And so it goes. The computer monitor is smudged with fingerprints and lined with dust. I gaze at a sailing painting and attempt to rest my eyes from the screen 10 centimeters from my face. I'm listening to my left ear ringing when a fist bangs on my desk. I've got an emergency client, Dr. Pesahi Omanovich says. Can you stay late? He asks. I blink. Yeah, sure. Yes, I can stay late. I flash him a grin. He doesn't buy it. Hard to fake emotions in front of a psychologist. The door chimes, and Dr. Pesahi Umarovich greets the after-hours patient. The woman's coat is buttoned wrong, her red hair damp. The doctor walks her to his office. I glance at the clock. 20.59. I was looking forward to leaving in one minute. I woke up at 3 a.m. last night and couldn't go back to sleep after that dream. Will I ever get a good night's rest? You can't explain being stalked in a dream to your authorities. In fact, it's better to keep things like that to yourself. By 21 o'clock, I'm asleep at the desk. I'm standing in the corner of Dr. Pesahi Omarovich's office. On the sofa lies a patient. Her bloodshot eyes stare at the ceiling, hollow like she's looking through it straight at heaven, or more like hell. Her voice cracks and shifts an octave as she speaks. He's gone. Her shoulders shake her breathing uneven. Someone took him. I don't know what to do. The woman wrings her hands on her chest, and Dr. Pesahi Umarovich places a hand over them. An abnormal behavior for a psychiatrist who uses clickers to reward good behavior. 
For the majority of his patients, the cold treatment is familiar. My baby's gone. She covers her face with her hands, her entire body caving into itself. I'll ask that you come back to see me in a week, Dr. Pesahi Omarovich says. Her forehead creases. You said you could help me now. The doctor tightens his hairband. With matters of post-traumatic stress, I like to give a week for the brain to do its own job on the matter. But you have to help me. He presses his lips together. You must wait, he says. This isn't the right time. I'll awaken you now. The patient turns her head, her cheek grazing the pillow. Who's that? She blurts, doing a double take. At me. My stomach jumps to my chest, and from the shock, I wake up. Dr. Pesahi Omarovich's door cracks open. Elbow slipping on papers, I lift my head from the desk as the two exit the office. As they approach reception, Dr. Pesahi Omarovich eyes me and I sit up in my chair. The woman walks to my desk. Her face is bony, sleep gunk hanging across her left eye like a strand of silly string. My heart races. Who is she? She looks familiar. Will she recognize me from her dream? She wraps the desk with her nails. Long day? I stare at my desk. Sorry, we're busy on Fridays. Busy enough to be asleep? I frown for a millisecond. One of those micro displays of emotion. Dr. Pesahi Omarovich says the human body gives micro spasms of emotions behind our fake smiles and false how are yous. Amidst the masks, there are glimpses of how we're feeling that we can't control. It's how he diagnoses people with his intuition. One time I had a couple come in who was seemingly fine and normal, but for some reason when I saw them, I felt sad and down afterwards. It turned out after two sessions I diagnosed them with depression. You have to pull back the curtain and watch for the moments when people forget their lines for half a second. I quickly change my frown into a smile. The patient fumbles ten hundred ruble bills onto my desk. I must find a way to distract her with something else before she recognizes me. I print her receipt and she squints at it, underlining the number and tax with a fingernail painted white. 
Her manicure is perfect. I glance at my own nails, which I've been chewing on all day, and tuck my hands under my thighs. She brushes past my desk. The scent of red wine under gasoline lingers. She yanks open the door and bangs from the clinic. She kept on her coat the entire visit. Dr. Pisahi Omarovic thumps a newspaper in front of me. My eyes jump to the clock, but the time doesn't register in my head. I worry he will reprimand me for making a mistake. I'm worried I'm going to get yelled at all the time for messing something up. The doctor nods at the Petersburg Times. In case you're wondering why we stayed late. I grab the newspaper and glimpse the school picture. And my heart stops. I clutch the paper so hard it rips. Nine-year-old boy gone missing. Reads the headline. Nine-year-old boy. Nine-year-old boy. Nine-year-old boy. Nine-year-old boy. He wasn't nine. Simeon Ligaski turned ten in October. I press my forehead against the stall. A sweat mark forms on the wall. Bending over the toilet, I dig my fingernails into my palms. I yearn to feel something, anything, but I feel nothing. I step from the stall and pull from my hair a pin. I stick the hair clip into the lock of a tampon machine. There's a click and I catch quarters pouring into my backpack. I don't care, I whisper, climbing down the fire escape. I don't care, I don't care, I don't care. When I tell myself that, it's when I care the most. My hands sting. The minus 20 degree weather registers in my brain, and I pull on my coat. Simeon's school photo prints from my mind to the sidewalk as I walk through the parking lot, shivering with every step. I can't go home. I must shake this feeling. A person could grab me now, and I wouldn't care. Let someone try and approach me. I'd kick their brains out. The street is empty, and I turn onto Sadovaya, closer into the city. I want to be where the people are. I can't be alone. I can't think. My fingers fidget to turn on a podcast, but I pull my hand from my pocket. My brain needs to digest the news. No distractions.
A tree stuck in a square plot sows as the wind whips around me, lapping my coat like a pen adding a serif to a letter. I want someone to stab me with a pen. People whisper about me in the street, or I'm narcissistic enough to think they do. The tourists are pointing their cameras at me. The lens is big. They're going to get mugged. I hope they have a handgun at the ready underneath their puffy coats. Turns out the tourists are pointing behind me at the Onion Church, mosaics sparkling rainbow under the moonlight. I'm crossing the most famous bridge in town, the one on the cover of souvenir books sold on the streets. Lights from amber buildings cast my shadow, their windows glowing orange. My teeth chatter. What would be the best thing for me to do? How can I help myself? To my mind comes the face of my pop. He would take care of me. Where would he tell me to go? I was 11. Pop stood in front of the mirror, buzzer alive in his hand as he shaved off his whiskers. He shook cologne onto his neck. He put his fingers under running water and slicked back his hair and combed out the ends. This was Pop's routine before church. My routine was to stand in the doorway and watch him. We went to a ceremony at the Peter and Paul Church. The angelic singing of the church choir spilled over my head, aching my ears and giving me a splicing headache. I pressed my hands to my sides. If I put my hands over my ears, I would have looked weird. The overseers could have kicked me from the church. Dad left for a smoke break, though I pretended he didn't smoke because it ached in my heart to picture him smoking. I coughed a fit when I inhaled secondhand smoke. I would hold my breath walking down the streets. My calves ached from standing for two hours. I closed my eyes, swaying back and forth. I hoped Pop would return so that I wouldn't look like bait for a child kidnapper. Not for a second did I think Pop was dying. I fell asleep, standing up. Pop slumped against the church wall, his cigarette nowhere to be found. Snapshots of life events flashed past me, like I was putting my thumb on the corner of a comic book. Pop's head stuck in a toilet in year two, a 
a soccer ball kicked at his head in year five. Pop getting an STI in high school. Pop driving a tank in the army and university. Pop working in a factory. Pop getting married. And he disappeared. I woke up with my head pounding and my stomach queasy. The choir was holding out a long note, their voices quivering, each separate from one another instead of blending together. As the ceremony ended, I worried around the church, waiting for Pop. Outside was dark. A siren wailed, circling the air and growing louder before it cut. As people streamed from the church, red lights flashed through the door. In the front corridor, selling candles in all sizes from baskets, a lady inspected a slip of paper and dropped it into a basket lined with a checkered cloth. May I borrow the telephone? I asked, eyeing the candles. I'd bought the cheapest thin candle that evening. It burned out in an hour. The lady handed me a stern expression and the phone. I dialed home and listened to the phone ring on the other end. Mom had warned me about child nappers. My chest tightened as a man stared at me from across the church. Was he going to kidnap me? Next thing I knew, the candle lady sat me down on a bench. Sit here and wait for your mother, she said. Then she marched down the aisle, carrying a basket with her, and back and forth for an hour. Mom ran into the hall. My shoulders dropped in relief. You're here! Where's Pop? I asked. Mom scooped an arm through mine and walked me from the church. No response. When we got home, she sent me to my room. We'll talk in the morning, she said. I lay on my bed, multiplying numbers by two, counting in squares, and finding primes as I trembled, my body cold and my heart pounding. Through the wall, I heard everything Mom muttered into the phone, the snap of the wrapping from the neck of a bottle. Church bells chime as I step into the Peter and Paul church, tucking my hood over my head. Once a tourist didn't wear a headscarf, and the church overseers expelled her from the church. I huddle against the wall and pray for the first thing that comes to my mind. Please bring back Simeon. Three years ago, 
I prayed to see Pop again. I heard nothing in return. Seconds tick past in silence. In front of an icon, a babushka peers at a group of candles. She holds a snuffer, looking for candle nubs to suffocate. She drags a rag across dripping wax on the candle table. Tears harden on the candle's torsos. I set one into a holder. The flame flickers and extinguishes. It's easy to forget religion when you don't need it. I stare at the ceiling, vaulted in paintings of cherubs and seraphim and fathers and sons and holy spirits. Where do people go in this city for peace of mind? But to church. Gold angels are chiseled into the arch at the head of the church. The priest points out the crowd and praises us for attending on a weekday, not just the weekends. I tune him out as he cracks open a Bible and drones in Old Russian. I'm here for one purpose. The cleanse of sins. My vision goes black as a confession wrap drapes over my head. Hands trembling, I put a hand on the gold Bible on the podium and kiss the cross in the center, the plate cold, cold on my lips. A cross dangles in front of my face. And I kissed Jesus on the crucifix. I hurt someone. I whisper under the confession wrap. How did you hurt someone? The priest's voice is calm. This priest has been at the Peter and Paul church since I was a kid. I don't know if I can trust him. What if he tells my mom or somebody else what I tell him? Sure, he's sworn to secrecy, but what if that's a front? What if he gets paid to tell the police what people confess? He breathes deep, sucking in air through his nose. The sinner next in line shuffles their feet on the velvet carpet. A boy went missing, I manage, and it's all my fault. The priest leans close. It wasn't your fault, he says. I could have prevented it, I say. I did nothing, and he's disappeared. What could you have done? I could have seen the hints. He tried to tell me something. I was talking to him. Or he was trying to talk to me. I ignored him. And so he went missing. 
It wasn't your fault, the priest repeats. Are you saying he went missing on purpose? If the boy went missing on purpose, he brought it onto himself. He was disturbed. How can you say that? I bite my tongue, drawing blood. I don't, I don't know if he went missing on purpose. If it's suicide, it's a deadly sin, the priest says. Thou shall not commit murder. My saliva tastes like iron, like I ran through the woods, sweat sticking to my mouth and blood rushing through my cheeks. How do I fix my mistakes? I ask. Jesus will forgive you, he says. I don't forgive myself, I whine. Behind me, a sinner sitting in a pew sighs. <sighs> they cross their arms and check their watch. Is that everything? asks the priest. I nod. Name? Donna Baudelaire. His voice hums as he utters. Dear Christ and God, please forgive dear Donna Baudelaire for her sins. Give her the strength to forgive herself and not to take ownership for someone else's sins. Dear Christ and God, let Donna sleep restfully tonight. Let her learn the values of living for herself. Dear Christ and God, show this young lady the way to salvation. Amen. He lifts the wrap from my head. My head hurts because I'm feeling like I let Simeon down. He asked me to meet him from dreams in real life, and I turned him down. <laughs> Near the exit, a baby releases a cry. It sobs wet as it gasps for air. As I step from the church, I yank my necklace. Yank, yank, yank. It strains on my neck, but doesn't cut. From my backpack, I pull my key and saw the string. The threads snap, and the cross drops into my hand. I tuck the broken necklace into my pocket and snap the button closed. I don't need a chain on me anymore. Sniffing snot that's collected in my nose since I stepped outside, I cross the cobbled square. Hey, Donna! Calls a voice behind me. My jaw, tense, unclenches in my confusion. Who's calling my name around here? Surely that's not for me. When people call my name at school, it's to laugh when I pass. Donna! Calls the voice again. A person nearby turns their head. 
From behind their sharp coat and upturned collar, they scowl. Think that's for you, they say, pulled along by their setter. I blush because the yelling is obviously for me and disrupting the quiet expanse of the square. I squint at the person trotting to me. It's Barashva, zipping her top. High-waisted snow pants match her cropped snow coat. This is fate seeing you here, she says. I was just thinking about you. My hands tremble. The good thing about feeling numb was it calmed me down. But now the nerves are back. I want to tell you, she says. Being in that church made me realize I shouldn't have ratted you out in class. I shrug though my shoulders twitch. After the day I've had today, I'm ready to forgive all my enemies, I say. What kind of day have you had? She asks. You have bags under your eyes. (laughs) Thanks, I say, shaking my head. I don't want to talk about it. I can't tell her that I fell asleep at my work desk and entered the dream of a mom whose kid I babysat for and who's disappeared. If I told Barashva, she'd walk away from me as fast as she can. And what if she told someone? But I want to tell her something. I can't bottle my emotions. If I do that, I'll explode at the worst moment. So I say, bad day at work today. Very bad. Where do you work? Barashava asks. At a psychologist's office. She nods. It must be draining to hear about emotional struggles all day long. I do reception, I admit. Her eyebrows raise. How draining can reception be? I clear my throat. Right, I say. It would be a lot less draining if I could stay awake and out of clients' dreams. Are you coming to the party tonight? She asks. I rub, my, I rub snow from my sleeve. Parties aren't my scene. She rolls her eyes. What is your scene? Come on, a good party always cheers me up. It's late, I say. It's a grad party. You were at grad council yesterday? She asks. I was, I say. Aren't the parties banned? Exactly. We need strength in numbers, she says. My eyes widen. What if we get caught? 
Come on, you're a senior once in a lifetime. If you're lucky. I hate parties, I say. You'll regret if you don't go. Go for the experience. I don't want to go to this party. But I also don't want to go home and be alone with my thoughts. Thoughts like, is it possible that someone kidnapped Simeon? I grab my head. If I don't get a distraction, I'm going to stay up all night thinking of what might have happened. And if I fall asleep, I'm afraid I'll enter Mrs. Ligovsky's mind again. Whose house? I ask Parashava. Parashava and I step off the number 79 bus, and it steams away. A flurry of pigeons shoots from us as we march through the park. The path's floor is hard as cement, and as I rub my eyes to stay awake, my feet shuffle, kicking dust. Maybe I'll even drink tonight. But no, I'd never do that. It's against my principles. I'll never get that low. As we approach a nest of trees, Parashava nudges me. Are you going to keep that on? She says, nodding at my goose feather coat. I bite my lip. Yes, if I take it off, I'll get frostbite. She cracks up, laughing hard until she wipes a tear under her eye. She must be real tense if she's laughing this hard. What kind of tensions does she have to release? She's got two older sisters to watch out for her at school. And a nice house. And she gets great grades and has tons of friends. Erg, how is she able to keep everything so balanced and I can't? But Ashrava's laughing subsides, and she wipes a tear under her eye. Another one. Don't take it off if you don't want to. I always wondered why you wore a coat that big. What is this, Alaska? She walks ahead. I grab at my puffy coat. Should I take it off? I don't want to. I mean, it's January. I hitch the coat from my ankles and run after Barashva into the forest. You've been listening to Chapter 4 of Social Dreaming. This is Alexandra. Please subscribe and rate and review. And I will see you with Chapter 5 next Sunday.